Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good. You are gracious and kind. We, we worship you. You are an exalted, awesome God, the greatest of all. There is none but you, and we want to exalt you, Lord. We want you to be um, on the throne in our lives. We want you to be glorified in our minds and with faith that we would follow you, that we would uh, rejoice in your word and your promises, that you would help us to understand your word today as we read it, that it would minister uh, comfort and grace and help, and that you would accomplish everything you desire in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hosea chapter 12, starting in verse 7. I always got a kick out of self-destruct uh, sequences in science fiction. I remember the James Bond movie where they're, they're having a self-destruct thing, and there's a, there's a human actually counting it down, like one minute and counting, as he's sitting while like the fire is going around him. And it's like, that's so, so bizarre and so unrealistic. So it's self-destruct buttons. Those things are used in science fiction or cartoons or the message for Mission Impossible, but really they have no practical application when humans are involved. Can you imagine building this, this building or the facility with some TNT in the walls just in case we need to blow it up at some point? And it's there all the time. Or in a plane. Like, in, if, if this plane were to fall into the wrong hands, we'd have to self to don't push that button because it's all just going to blow. It's wired to blow right now. But uh, to think that that could be possible, it's pretty it's really ridiculous. Like, self-destruct that I have to push and then I have to leave. Um, now, we, we've heard of self-destructive behavior, right? There's some things that we could call that. Our study through Hosea shows that sin is destructive. Sin or rebellion, it could be compared to like a ticking time bomb that when you choose sin and you walk in that lifestyle, it's like click and really, from birth, because of our sin nature, we have this, this propensity to sin, this bent towards sin. And God's people were not exempt from the consequences of sin. Uh, he, he, God did not rig Israel to blow. He did not push the self-destruct button. They were responsible. They were to blame because sin was destructive there. And a word of caution Let's not jump to conclusions if we, sh- if we see people on hard times or struggling with finances or in poor health or when marriages or relationships are on the rocks. Um, we can foolishly think that it must be because they did something. But think about Job. He was a righteous man. There was no one as righteous as him. And yet he suffered terribly. Jesus, did he sin at all? No, but he was crucified for our sin. It would be foolish to think that we know why something happens to someone else. Um, Now, God, in our passage today, he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel specifically. He's calling them out. And when God calls me out, I ought to listen to him. And when he calls you out, you're to listen to him and respond, to take it to heart, to repent, and to do the thing that he's telling you to. the nation of Australia, our beautiful land, it would be foolish to expect or to think, to assume that our current prosperity will be perpetual 
if we embrace sin without repentance. We're most blessed, but forgetting God, it leads to sin destruction. And that's what we'll be reading today. So Hosea 12, verse 7. A cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. But I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. God's people, he promised to establish them in Canaan. But he says, a cunning Canaanite when talking about them. Because instead of looking like him, instead of acting like the children of Israel, they were acting like the Canaanites. They had adopted these corrupt uh, business practices and were not reflecting his righteousness at all. And they said, we have become wealthy. And they gained this wealth through greed, deceit, and oppression. And if you turn forward a couple books to Amos, Chapter 8, verse 4. So Amos chapter 8, verse 4. We'll read um, a passage that's quite similar. And it, it describes in more detail some of the things that they were doing at this time. Because Amos is the book, um, God willing, we're going to go to next after Hosea. Because he too was speaking to the northern kingdom. Amos chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying... When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. You can see the heart of the people here, can't you? where these businessmen, they would observe the feasts, they would keep the Sabbath, but they couldn't wait for them to be over so that they could do what they really wanted, which was to make money, to get more servants, to have more increase. And I wonder if we can be like this, like we look forward for prayer or worship to be over so that we can do the thing we really want to do that day. It's like, well, yeah, I I guess we can. And greedy for gain, it says that they made the ephah small. So they they said, here's an ephah, but it was not quite. It was was less than an ephah and the shekel large. So they were taking a little bit more for a little bit less of a product. And uh, they sold substandard wheat at full price. They prided themselves on their business savvy. And God says, I'm going to swear by your pride. I'll never forget any of your works. Everything you do, I have seen, and I know the heart behind it. And as they're counting their silver and their gold, it's like their ledger of sin was getting greater and greater. And they saw themselves as self-made. Like, if you go back to that Hosea passage, I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. And then they were, they were self-righteous. In all my labors, they shall find in me no iniquity at all. They knew they were working the system. They knew the, the tolerances of what would be allowed with their, with their scales and their measurements. And they covered their tracks shrewdly. They knew they weren't going to go to court for it. So they were unethical. They were immoral. But they were within the letter of the law because they bent it for their advantage. 
they justified greedy and unethical business practices because everybody was doing it and they weren't going to get in trouble for it. So they're like, why not? If I can charge a little bit more, if I can enrich myself, I mean, they're stealing from me anyway. And you could justify it. They were intimately acquainted with the legal system, but notice they didn't think about God. They go, they will find no fault in me. But they didn't think about what God was thinking, what he had judged. They didn't consider him. In Hosea's day, it was a day of wealth and prosperity. People were living in houses. They weren't living in tents anymore. They had these vineyards and flocks and herds and gardens. And God's like, you're going to be back to living in tents. You will become like the poor of the land that you're oppressing. You're going to be the oppressed ones. Hosea 12, verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls and Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. The children of Israel could not claim that their rebellion was a result of ignorance. God had given them his law. He had sent prophets to them. He says, I multiplied visions, so I gave them the words to say. I've even provided object lessons that you all understand. A child could understand these. It's ironic at times in Scripture that God's people remain unmoved while the Gentiles respond to what God said. Think about Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus points out that there were a lot of lepers in Naaman's day, but Naaman the Syrian was the only one healed because he came from Syria to seek the help of Elisha because he's like, I heard that there's a prophet here who can heal me. The entire city of Nineveh repented in dust and ashes, fasting, even the animals wearing sackcloth and not, uh, can you imagine not allowing your flocks or herds to drink water for three days or to eat? That would be a big job. You got like 2,000 cows and they're hungry and you're like trying to muzzle them and corral them away from water, putting sackcloth on all of them. That's the extent that they went to, to say, you know, who kn- they didn't even have a promise. They just said, who knows if God will relent and turn away his wrath from us. So they responded in belief. But Israel, they largely rejected the words spoken by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and Jesus. And Jesus is like, a greater than Jonah is here, Pharisee. But you're not listening to me. It's like the more God called out to his people, the further they went from him. They're offering sacrifices to idols in Gilgal and Gilead, and they attributed their prosperity to these idols that could not hear them. And these religious observances they had, they involved feasting and sex, and they were something that the people really loved, and they didn't want to stop doing. It's it's kind of like... This worship of idols was a modern-day dinner out and a tender hookup. That's kind of what it was for them. Because they were, they, that's the way that they would worship these idols was through sexual intercourse, through the sacrificing of animals that they would eat, and also the sacrificing of children. I mean, for us, it's hard for us to understand, like, well, who would want to do that anyway? So it's not a big deal to quit doing that. But they couldn't imagine not doing it. This was their outlet. This was their thing. This is how they 
benefited themselves. They believed that their prosperity came through this, and they enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's kind of like the promises that mobile phones and internet gives us where we can escape and we're in control and we have control over our profile. We can be who we want to be. There's this uh, promise almost of freedom and uh, convenience, security, an endless array of hacks and entertainment and reviews and games and we can be in a codependent relationship with a mobile device and they were in a codependent relationship with these idols and all the stuff associated with them people for thousands of years have lived satisfactory fulfilling lives without mobile devices and we might wonder how How can you live without this? That's how they were feeling about idolatry. How can we live without this? This is what we do. This is a big part of our life, and it's a part of my life that I enjoy, and I live for, and I look forward to. God promised those idols that you're worshiping, they're going to be thrown down. They're going to be thrown into the furrows of the field, like those phones are just recycled into something else. So those, those idols are just going to be thrown down and go back to the dust. Hosea 12, 12. Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. God, like, takes the the nation back to their humble beginnings. He says, remember where you came from? Jacob. He had to run away from home to find a bride in Laban's house. He was on the run for his life in in Syria. And for seven years, he tended sheep for Rachel. And he was tricked and given her older sister, Leah, instead. So he worked another seven years. Being a shepherd was not a status of importance. The, The Egyptians said, we... When, when Joseph's family came to Egypt later, he's like, you know what? Tell them, don't, don't tell them you're shepherds because they hate shepherds. Tell them you work with cattle. It just sounds a lot better. It's a better resume. So Jacob's, Jacob's son, Joseph, ends up going to Egypt. God brings him there, and he, he invites the people to stay to survive the famine. So it was all God's plan that, Jacob, that Joseph would go and that the whole nation would r- grow in Egypt and they'd be enslaved there for 430 years. So they go from being shepherds to being slaves. It's like a step down. And God brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand by Moses, the prophet, whom he prepared him for 40 years in the wilderness, tending his father-in-law's sheep. They weren't even his sheep. He's tending sheep and he brought them out with a mighty hand and he interceded on behalf of the people, and God preserved them. And God's like, I preserved them, but they provoked me to anger because they went after these idols. They even offered their sons and daughters on these idols. They were guilty of breaking the covenant they had made with God, and their guilt would not be removed without repentance and atonement. It's like they could wash the blood from their hands, but they couldn't clean their hearts. Solomon writes in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? The answer is no one. No one can say that. 
Clean hands don't mean a pure heart. And the, pers- the, the executive with that press shirt and a silk tie, the bride in her wedding dress, the person who goes into the mikvah and comes out ceremonially cleansed, they're all sinful until they've been purified with the blood of Jesus Christ, until they've been washed clean. Only God can make us clean. This is what David said in Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5. He says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Only God can stop the sin destruction in our lives. Hosea 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill, all of it the work of a craftsman. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Israel's unique to all of their nations in that God, the Creator, who descended with fire on Mount Sinai and made the earth shake, he would be their king. He would have no image, he would have no throne. He would be their invisible God that they would honor and obey. But it's like, hey, where's your king? Oh, my king is God. Well, what does he look like? Like, The Romans, they put Caesar on their coinage. Even we have the queen on our coinage as well. But God gave them his law, and they meticulously copied it letter by letter. And it was taught by the priests and Levites. And after a while, though God had done everything he said, he brought them out of bondage, he brought them into the land of promise. They had all these, they had an Ebenezer stone set up, like this far God has helped us. And yet they said, you know, Samuel, your sons aren't like you, and we just want a king like everybody else. We want a king to fight our battles, to go in and out before us. We want to be like them. And... uh, that was the beginning of a downfall. It's, it's interesting that as Saul went, so went the people. Because at the beginning, he was humble in his own eyes. He was a humble guy. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. But on his coronation day, when they went to crown him, they couldn't find him because he was hiding in the storage area. Like, he didn't want the spotlight. But it was shortly after he assumed the throne that he sought honor and glory for himself. And so the children of Israel, they come trembling out of Egypt. God brings them into the promised land. They become strong. They become prosperous. And they say, give us a king. And then they exalted themselves, as it says in verse 1. That exalting self, it led to offense through idolatry. And he says, when he began idolatry, he died. Sin brings death. They were spiritually cut off from God at that point. Instead of destroying the images of Baal and the altars, they sanctified temples and priests, and they offered their children to these idols. 
and they did what God forbade. They, they uh, built altars and high places under every green tree on every hill, and they venerated the creation over the creator. I like what Hubbard says in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, viewed together, the sin is a total perversion of values. A craftsman work is elevated to divine status. Human beings sacrifice their offspring to metal objects from whose lifeless form they also beg help. Persons embrace with adulation the images of the very animals they use for plowing, threshing, and hauling. So ironic, isn't it? And what's even more ironic is we can so clearly see their folly and their idolatry, yet we can be blind to our own. We don't realize when I'm doing the same thing. If we're asked when we sin, why did you do that? Or why did you say that? Our best answer might be, I felt like it, or I don't know. Isn't that wild? Like that would be our best answer. That's our most honest, sincere answer. It's like, I have no idea. I really, I didn't even think about it. God's given us more sense than all plants and animals. At times, they put us to shame. Sin nature, it's, we, are we are corrupted because of sin, and we're further corruptible. It's behind the, the no of a stubborn child. It's the tone of the toddler who says, I do it myself. It's the rage of a teen that curses his father or mother to, his, to their face, or the anger that we have when our expectations are unmet. We feel slighted. It's like self. It's there, and we have to deal with it. We can't blame others for our state. It's like even if the world was your perfect ideal, you would still be in sin, and we would need to repent. And so praise the Lord when there are things that upset us, that make us aware of our need and our unbelief so that we might turn to the Lord because sin reveals us to be our worst enemy. God told those idolaters, lovers of self who were kissing the calves, it's like those who would think that because, like in Israel, you see it all the time where people are kissing the ground or kissing the stones or touching them with great reverence, thinking that they're holy in themselves. It's like, well, it's a rock. And some important person may have stepped on it at some point. But really, that sort of worship and love, that's for God. Turn that worship and adoration towards him, not just because St. Peter stepped here. Like this, worship God, no one else. He said, they're going to be like the morning cloud, the marine layer that just burns off when the sun is hot. It just dissipates. You're going to be gone. Like the morning dew, it just evaporates. It's, it's no more. Without a memory, the chaff that's blown from a threshing floor, carried off by the breeze, the cloud of choke, uh, smoke from a chimney that's just dissipating in the atmosphere. He's like, you guys, you're trying to make a legacy for yourself, but you're not going to endure because of your sin. And, and God's not talking to kind of the, the dregs of society. I don't know if we would put ourselves in that, you know in that category, but he's not talking to like, 
He's not going to the prison and saying this. He's speaking to the pillars of the community. He's speaking to the philanthropists. He's talking to the business elders that are respected, the godfathers of the town, right? The, the wealthy folks, the religious and the pious. He's saying these words to them. He's saying, you're not going to last. You're going to just blow away. You're going to be forgotten and gone forever because you're in a sin-destruct sequence and there, you can't stop it. You can't reverse it. Absalom, a son of King David, he illustrates this well. Here's a, here's a handsome man who is also very vain. Every year he would, weigh, he would cut his hair and weigh it because it was so thick and lush. I don't know, can hair be lush? Luscious? Well, he had some luscious locks, old Absalom. But the great irony is this guy, he hires, he hires princes. He's a prince, but he hires people to run before him. He has an entourage of 50 men. He steals away the hearts of people. He takes the kingdom. And he didn't have a son. So he said, I want to be remembered well. And he made this pillar in the Kidron Valley. But he wasn't buried there. Because when he was trying to attack King David and his men, as he was going under an oak tree, his hair caught in it, and he was strung up by his hair. And so as he's hanging there trying to get free, Joab goes and stabs him through the heart. And he's like, take him, throw him over there. They just throw his body somewhere, cover it with rocks. No one knows where Absalom's buried. He was like the chaff that the wind blew away. David spoke of that. In Psalm 1-4, he said, The ungodly are not so, not like that tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. He says, The ungodly are not so, but like the chaff that the wind drives away. That's their end, the end of those in the sin-destruct sequence. Achan in the valley of Achor, he was... He was the one that took of the stuff of Jericho that wasn't and brought a curse upon the whole camp. And so he and those who helped him, they were thrown in the valley, covered over with rocks, forgotten. A little heat, a little breeze, they'd be gone. Those who seemed pillars and immovable in their power. Hosea 13.4, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. Clouds, dew, chaff, smoke, those are all transient. But God endures. He says, I'm not like those things. I'm a God and a Savior. God's many things. He's a creator, redeemer. He's the almighty. But he reminds them of being a savior because they had forgotten that he was a savior and they needed one. They didn't realize they needed saving because everything seemed fine at the time. It had been a long time since they were slaves in Egypt and he just reminded them, guys, you need me. There's no savior but me. Those calves can't save you. Your money can't save you. Only I can save you. God knew his people. He says that I knew you in the wilderness. So he intimately knew them. And they had a relationship with one another. And like a shepherd, day and night watches over his sheep, so he kept them. And when they needed water, 
he provided it for them. When they asked for meat, he gave it to them. Even without asking. They didn't say, Lord, please give us meat. He says, oh man, I wish we could go back to Egypt and eat. And he's like, you know what? You don't think I can feed you? I will feed you. And he offered them meat. So he gave them things they didn't even directly ask for because he's gracious and good and he cares about them. Sheep, wilderness, bad combination. Right? You're, you're open to attack. There's no water. There's no, there's no safety. You're just exposed. But God sheltered them. God protected them. He provided manna and quail, and through his might, the strongholds were reduced to rubble. The giants were vanquished. He brought them into Canaan, to cities they didn't build, and wells they didn't dig, to trees and vineyards they didn't plant. It was exceedingly good land, but as soon as their bellies were filled, they forgot about God, that they needed a savior. Pride ruins poor and wealthy alike. And the question is, do you need a savior today? Do you need saving? We know we can't save ourselves from hell or from our own sin, but do you realize you need a savior now? Do you need a savior from your sinful habits, from lust and greed and gluttony and worry and cursing and hatred that just boils up and we go, where did that come from? How about from your enemies at work or perhaps of your own household or salvation from grief or depression or unbelief or selfishness? In our trouble, our need becomes obvious to us, but when all is well, we quickly forget. Like you guys, if you're like me, uh, Lord's blessed me with really good health for the vast majority of my life, and so I kind of have an expectation that that's how things should be. And when I feel bad and I feel sick, I, I can't remember feeling well, but then as soon as I feel well, it's like I forget how I felt being sick until it happens again. And you go through this cycle, right? God knew Israel, and he knows you. Do you know him? Do you know him? Marriage has taught me that familiarity does not mean closeness. And cohabitation does not mean intimacy. You can share the same bed with someone for 20 years, but you can be leading a totally separate life from them. God exists. And so this is one thing, too. It's like, well, yes, we need a Savior. But God, he exists for more than just meeting our needs because it's not just about us and what we want or what we need. He wants to supply our needs. He will supply our needs. But we, he, we exist for a purpose greater than our needs being met. And so in that light, it's like, what's more important, having my needs met or doing what pleases God? He's promised to meet my needs, and he has, hasn't he? He's brought us to this point today. He has met your needs because you're alive, and praise the Lord, you're here. And you know, he will continue to meet your needs as he has until now. And life isn't, I think, about what about God? We could talk about our needs and our wants, but what about him? He's the exalted one. He's the great one that we are to worship. But we could be so caught up in how we feel or, or what we feel we need that we forget about God. It's just part of the human condition. 
Human, uh, excuse me, Hosea 13, verse 7. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage and I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Now, it's probably not the message you put on one of your little stationery or on a pillow. Say, you know, this is my God. <laughs> Would you like to worship this too? <laughs> Lions, leopards, bears, all predators, they were all feared by the people. Like if you heard the lion roaring, the Asiatic lion, it's the apex predator. Um, these, le- these Arabian leopards, they're camouflaged, opportunistic hunters, they leap, they have great stealth abilities. And there's few things in nature as fierce as a bear deprived of her cubs. Um, though Syrian brown bear is a species that once inhabited Israel, I read a stat that said 70% of human, humans killed by grizzly attacks, 70% is because the bear, the she-bear is separated from her cubs. So she's protecting her cubs. So vast majority of the deaths that occur are because of the bear protecting or defending the cubs. Now, today in Israel, the Syrian brown bear uh, has been eradicated, the leopards. I don't think there's any that exist there. But this picture, right, it's not pretty, where he's like, I am going to tear open your rib cage. (laughs) Wow. You don't survive that. It's not survivable. And God has just talked about, you know, you've been filled in this pasture. You're like a sleepy, sluggish goat or sheep. That's easy prey for any of these. And I'm going to be like that to you. You're not going to get away with it. God would be like a wild beast that would devour like a lion. And I think it's good for us to read passages like this, not just gloss over and go, ooh, ooh. But to think, let the implications of it sink in. If sheep or us are afraid of lions, leopards, and bears, how much more should we fear God? I mean, if you're in the wild... And you hear that, oh, that growling behind you. You're like, oh, the hair on the back of your neck is standing up. And you're like, I don't have any weapons. I don't have, I, I can't run, outrun this thing. And it's really angry. If, if that animal, that little thing that God has made strikes fear into you, how much more should we tremble before God, knowing his power and like you can't get away from him? That aspect of him is important. We've been told of God's grace and his mercy and his love so much, we can lose sight of the fierceness of his wrath and his judgment and his fury for sin. The people did quake when God descended on Mount Sinai. He warned them. He didn't surprise them. He says, all right, in three days, be ready because I'm going to appear on Mount Sinai. And don't come near the mountain because it'll mean your death. Like, keep your distance because I'm going to reveal myself to you in a powerful way. And it said, like, the earth is shaking, the smoke, the fire, and the trumpet is exceedingly loud. And the people are like, you talk to him, Moses. We don't want anything. We cannot talk to him because we're going to die. Like, it was scary, scary. And uh, you think God is not just a word on a page. He is real, and he is powerful, and he is almighty, and he... He is the judge of all the earth who will do right. We can quake before like a spider or a mouse that runs over our leg and be like, creeped out and freaked out. 
but we can fall asleep during prayer to God. It's like, how? How is that possible? God, that we could just get a little, get a little drowsy and confused and, oh, sorry, I drifted off there. Can you imagine doing that before your boss or your CEO comes in? Or even your employees, and you're just like so tired, you can't even, you're, ugh. like this is God we're talking about. But this is like we're confronted with our own weakness and our forgetfulness and, and how, how just common we can be about God when he is exceptional, spectacular, the greatest of all time, infinite in power and might and love. Hosea 13, verse 9. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Israel had sin destructed, but God was their only help. He says, you are destroyed. And they could go like, this place is looking pretty good. These temples, these vineyards, these fields, my bank account, you know, things are looking good. But he said, you're destroyed. Your help is in me. And then he just says, I will be your king. Can you imagine a king that would do that to people who had treated him like he had been treated? That he would say, I'll be your king. I volunteer. I want you. I want you to be my subject. I will be your king. I'll rule over you. To people who scorned him, to people who rejected him, and he knew would reject him again. It wasn't because, you know, I know that because of this, you guys will amend your ways and be worthwhile. So, no. <laughs> they were going to reject him and forget about him again. But he loved them. He would have them. And he revealed, you know, your kings are political puppets. They have no power. They don't have armies that can save you. Their resources are spread thin. There's no help from government here. The judges who ruled in Israel, they're long gone. You asked for a king, and so I gave you a king. Like anything you could fall back on to hope for is gone. And it's like he asks them, how is having a king working out for you now? It, wasn't it better when I was your king before this king, this series of kings that have ruled over you? Going your way, it's led to ruin and destruction, but your help is in me. I'm the one who will help you. They can't help you, but I can. God told his people the truth, whether they would hear it or not. I wonder if they thought, they kind of, well, other people have got it worse than us, or, well, it can't get much worse than this. The only place up from here is up. They, they tried to put a good spin on the direction of the nation. Remember when God spoke the words by Lot, or to Lot that Sodom would fall, the response he had from his own family, his sons-in-laws. I think perhaps in Hosea's day, people thought the same thing. Like, the guy's crazy. He's just making no sense. He's lost it. He's joking. So Lot, he has this visitation by these angels who say, the city is going to be destroyed tomorrow. We need to leave. Pack up and leave. And it says in Genesis 19.14, he says, get up. Get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. 
See, Hosea, Lot wasn't joking. Hosea wasn't joking. God's not joking. He says, Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. Do you know that people blamed God for the bad state of affairs as things got worse and worse in Israel? They actually blamed him for their problems. They said, you know what? It, it's not, you know, God's the problem. When we quit worshiping these other idols, that's when things got bad. We need to really worship idols more now because God's the one who's got us into this mess when they had pressed the self-destruct button. They were guilty of sin destructing. It wasn't God's fault. He wasn't to be blamed. But unbelief turned them from God. It turned them to choose a king and they turned from the only one who could help them. The King James of Hosea 13.10, it's rendered, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. And you know, these words are true of all nations and all people. We're guilty of ruining and corrupting ourselves, but in God is our only help. As we go through our days, we hear, the Bible says, we'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, of earthquakes in various places, that there's conflicts, and you hear bad news in a family or in, in a family member. And we can have in, the worries and the cares can grow with financial difficulties or the unknowns of the future. And we realize that the government and schemes and money that can't save us, it can't fix the problems that we face individually and as a nation. And as the world goes, it's like the world is heading to hell and we're not capable of saving it. We can't change people. We can't even save ourselves. Yet in God is our help. He is help for us. We've sinned destructed, and if we try to put the pieces back together, it's like the horses and the nobles and the Humpty Dumpty fable. It's like they could not put him back together again. He's broken. Once that egg is broken, there's no gluing it back together. Now, perhaps you feel great today. You're like, I could have done without the... Uh, rib cage ripping statements but you think really everything's fine or you may feel destroyed if god says you are destroyed and you go yes i am well in god is your help and please turn to psalm 46 and we're going to read this together and it's a wonderful passage to remind us of the help that we have in god the hope that is ours in him. I am so glad that God is God and that he's good. Imagine, I cannot imagine if God was evil or wicked. But God is altogether righteous. He is good and faithful. He is loving and kind. He is just. Psalm 46 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, 
even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. God is our refuge. God is our help. He says, we're not going to be afraid even if the world comes apart at the seams and the mountains are thrown into the ocean. If our whole life is thrown into chaos, we're going to trust God. We're going to take refuge in him. The earth may quake, but we will stay strong and steadfast in our God who is with us and in us. Isn't it cool where it says, Behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth, that he makes war desolate. We think of desolation as what happens after a war, but he's saying that conflict, the weapon that's been fashioned against you, that's broken in my hands. The bow is broken, the spear is cut, the chariot is burned with fire. Like those are the desolations that God works in the end. God will be exalted because he is God and the battles you're facing today will someday end and God will be victor. Isn't that awesome? I don't even know, need to know what the battle is. I know that this is true of our God. No weapon that's fashioned against us will prosper and he is over all. Be still and know God, our refuge and help, our only Savior from sin destruction. God is with us. God is our refuge. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are great and awesome, that your ways are higher than ours, that your power, through the words of your mouth, you have created this world, the universe and everything in them. You have breathed life into our souls dead with sin. You have revived us, Lord, and we pray, revive us again. Quicken us, Lord, with faith to believe you, to realize that we are destroyed, but our help is in you and only in you. Thank you that you give us uh, clarity and you give us hope and that you are our refuge. I pray, Lord, we would hear your word today, that it would not seem like a joke to us. We would not... Um, Forget the things we've heard, but we'd walk close to you. We would know you. We would be the faithful sheep of your pasture who do not forget you when we're full. Though you've led us into green pastures and beside still waters and you've restored our souls, help us to be those who daily seek you, those sheep that hear your voice and follow you, who deny self to obey.
Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you that you haven't left us without help and you haven't destroyed us, but you have preserved us and you have awesome plans for us now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.